Well, good evening again, you guys. Um, so for those of you guys that don't know, uh, I, I'm notorious for crying whenever I'm up here. And I just want to acknowledge that last week, Winston got up here and he cried. I think he owes me a royalty personally, but whatever. So Winston, you did a great job. Thank you for um, bringing us back into the, the book of John. For those of you guys that have been away for a while, um, we've been slowly working our way through the book of John, and we take breaks here or there um, to kind of talk about some other things. And today we're going to be in John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you might start finding your way over there. But let me ask you guys uh, a question, and I, I want you to wrestle with it for a second. Do you think Jesus ever had a bad day? Jesus, right? right? Do you think that he ever had a bad day because he was tired of people? Do you think Jesus ever had one of those days where the people were the problem, right? I, I just want you to, I want to start there, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about me because, quite frankly, I have days where people are the problem all the time. Like, y'all are my people, so we'll kind of keep it anonymous. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, seriously, the, the other day... Um, I had a long day. Like, I, it, nothing went wrong. It wasn't like a, a hard day, just a long day. And so then I get home, and home is your, like, safe place, right? Home is your, your people, your sanctuary, your family. That's where you should feel relaxed. And I come home to my 16-year-old and my twin 15-year-olds fighting and arguing and bickering. And it felt like everywhere that we went that evening, everything that we did, one kid was talking over another kid and then my wife would be trying to talk and then suddenly there, there's like three conversations happening. And for me, that just starts to make the, those neck muscles just sort of tense up, right? Like at some point, the bickering and the fighting had gotten to me and I started getting kind of snappy right? I started being a little bit of the problem too. And, and the, the reality is that by the time I went to bed, I was so exhausted. I was exhausted because of people. Have you ever been there? Like you're not exhausted from like hanging sheetrock all day. That's not what I mean. I mean like the people around you just took everything you had out of you. And you were just exhausted, right? Like by the time I went to bed, I had a headache. My pillow was my best friend. And some people are exhausting, right? Like certain people are exhausting. Like, like your sister's friend, Becky, who like never stops talking. If there's a Becky in the room, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I saw a few heads whip around and I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't even think about that. But seriously, like there's people in your life that just never stop talking and you're just like, exhausted, right? Or, or there's some types of people, right, that exhaust you. There's just certain types of people that you just can't be around. Or there might even be some situations with people that are exhausting where, like, like people say that they want to do stuff, they want to get together, right? But then trying to get them organized is like trying to squeeze blood out of a rock. Like, it's just frustrating to be around certain people or certain situations with people. So you, you know, though, that feeling of being exhausted, and then your best friend calls, right? Or you finally get home, and, and your, your spouse is waiting there for you and, like, receives your exhaustion with grace, right? There's, there's those moments when you get around your favorite person at the end of a day like that, and it's, like, refreshing, right? It can kind of just make all of that stress just melt, like, I know that my wife is on the phone with her best friend whenever 
the door shuts and then suddenly like she's giggling <laughs> and like her whole entire mood changes whenever she's on the phone with her friend and it's like refreshing to her. We love people like that in our lives that, that make us feel that way, but we can definitely tell the difference between that and everybody else. Do you think Jesus ever felt that way? Do you think Jesus feels that way now? Are there certain people or certain types of people that are just draining and frustrating for Jesus? People that when he's with them, it's like the tension in his shoulders is just like palpable. Like you just, you just feel it. Does Jesus ever deal with that? Are there people that Jesus, when he gets around them, it's like everything just melts and he's like, I'm so glad I'm with you. See, I think so many, so many times we get caught up in, in what Jesus has done for us, and sometimes we talk about Jesus as God, and, and I think sometimes we just forget that Jesus walked on this earth, a human dude, right? Like, he had the same interactions with the same kinds of people that we do. I bet you he felt exactly like that sometimes, just exhausted with people. And so that's actually similar to or, or kind of where I want to show you guys something in the text today. And so we're going to be in John chapter 10. I think we're going to see a story that feels a lot like that. But as you're turning to John 10, I want you to think about a normal day in the day-to-day -day life of Jesus. What was a normal day like for Jesus, right? Because it started, remember, like with John the Baptist, it started there at the Jordan River, Right? And, and so Jesus like comes out of the bushes and John's down there and he's got this big crowd of people. He's already gotten a lot of attention in the nation. He's, a, he's kind of a big deal in the area and Jesus steps out of the bushes and like everything stops and John goes, that guy. That's the one I've been telling you about. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It says that when he saw him, it was like it was revealed to him, the Son of God is in our midst. Now, I'm going to guess that at that moment, Jesus' ministry, his day-to-day, -day, was easy, right? Like, you imagine walking into that environment with like a pre-made group of followers, and then the guy who's in charge goes, follow him, I'll bet you it was kind of easy in the early days, right? There were people that just wanted to follow him. The problem is, over the next couple years, not everybody receives him like they did at the Jordan River that day. See, over the next couple years, what we see is there's essentially three types of people that Jesus is always interacting with. There's the people that are unreached, the people that he's going for, and then there's the, the followers that have already gotten on board with what he's doing, and he often refers to them like as, as his sheep. He's their shepherd, right? But then you've got this other group, his opponents. And it seems like more and more, the miracles that he does and the sermons that he gives, the parables that he tells, everything starts to be challenged by this group of opponents. And they're always there just to frustrate, just to agitate because I think Jesus is a threat to that group of people, right? They've got a good thing going. They're in, they're in charge of the religious system and the, and the political system in their country. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He's a big deal. He's a threat. And so you have these three groups of people, the people Jesus is after, the people that are following him, but also the opponents. 
And so it seems like everywhere he goes, while he's looking at one group of people, he's having to fight off and deal with this other group. That's where we pick up John 22. It goes like this. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. You guys know that, uh, that holiday. We just call it something different now. This is Hanukkah. So then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Like, please, if you would just tell us, right? Like, we, we get it. Like, you're special. You're different. Are you the Messiah? And I think at first, like, how many of you guys have ever been fish? How many of you like to fish, okay? Because there's a difference. Everybody's been fishing, and those of you that didn't raise your hand never caught anything, right? <laughs> because there's that moment, the people who like to fish know what that moment feels like whenever you cast out a line, maybe it's bait or a lure, and that first moment when the fish hits, oh, the adrenaline that pumps through, you're like, yeah, it might be big, might be small, but that moment's always the same. It's exciting, when I read this, I feel like that should be a moment for Jesus, right? He's finally in an environment where people are asking the right question. Are you the Messiah? Tell us. Would you, just, just tell us. And I, that should be like he just set the hook and he's like, I'm going to get up. And yet that's not the way that Jesus is going to respond. And I think the clue is actually in who's asking the question. It says here that the Jews who were gathered around him were saying this, but really the implication here is that it's the Jewish leaders, that it's those that represented the Jewish nation, the Pharisees and the scribes that had been following him around, agitating him everywhere he goes. They'd been complaining and arguing with him. They'd been saying that whatever he's doing couldn't possibly be from God because it's on a Saturday, <laughs> Right? Like all of this stuff, this strife, and then the same group of people says, hey, would you, would you tell us if you're the Messiah? We would love to believe in you. And I think he sees right through that, right? And we see that in his answer. He goes, it goes like this, verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the most clear statement in Scripture that Jesus gives to this question. Are you the Messiah? And he goes, yes. Full stop. I did tell you, you don't believe. And then he goes on to explain why. And it's not because they need clarity, right? If only you'd be more clear, Jesus. It's not because they need more information. Explain to us again about how this all works. It's not because they need more evidence, because he's been healing people right and left, right? He's walking on water and like feeding hillsides full of people. He says it's not for any of those reasons. It's because you're not my sheep. And see, here's something that I see in that verse. 
Verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, right off the bat, that's very relational, right? But something else that I've learned about sheep is that the sheep need the shepherd, right? Like, the sheep don't know where they're going without the shepherd. The sheep don't have any idea what to do. Like, how do I get to that other pasture over there? I don't like where I'm at anymore. I need somebody to take me there. I need somebody to take care of me, to protect me from the wolves. I need a shepherd. Sheep know that they need their shepherd, and they know it. And he says, I did tell you, and you don't believe because you don't need me. Sheep, did you know, um, especially back in, in ancient times, but I, I hear that they still do this, um, lots of different shepherds might be in one area at a time, and, they, and during the day they've got their flock, and they're out in the hillsides doing their things. But at night, in order to protect the sheep, sometimes multiple shepherds will bring each of their flocks into one pen. Like you might have four different flocks of sheep who spend the night together and they're milling around and they're all sleeping in one, one fenced-in area. And then in the morning, all the shepherds can stand there at the gate and the sheep know their shepherd's voice. The shepherd can say, hey, my sheep, let's go out to pasture. And his sheep separate themselves from the others and follow him because they know their shepherd's voice. See, I think this is evidence that there are people that recognize that they are lost without a shepherd. They recognize that they need a shepherd. And so they get to know his voice. Those are the people that believe, right? Now, Jesus is looking at, at their worldview too. He's going to start talking to this, this group of people about their worldview. And one of the things that is is a little bit wrong with what they believe. See, as they were looking for a Messiah, they said, are you the Messiah? But they weren't expecting it to be God. See, you've got these Old Testament prophecies that talk about a coming Messiah that will deliver, and then there were Old Testament prophecies about a God that will deliver, right? But the idea that that was going to converge in a single person was a new idea. And so they're like, we, 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 hear, we hear this idea... Like we do. We hear this idea of the Messiah, and we just, it's all tangled together with the Son of God. And for them, they thought Messiah, and they thought deliverer from Rome. They thought maybe somebody who would fit into their system and help them overcome. So verse 31 happens, because he just got done telling them that I and the Father are one. Me and God were like this. We're so like this that you really can't tell us apart. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones. Again. Again. Imagine Jesus at this point, right? How many times in Jesus' ministry are they going to pick up stones and try to kill me? Again, Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. If anybody ever says that Jesus never claimed to be God, you need to go back in time and tell everybody that he ever talked to. Because <laughs> the people around him got it, right? 
They're going to stone him for it. And see, here's the thing. I think miracles, the works, he says, I do all these good works, right? The miraculous stuff. I think the miracles validated his claim as Lord for his sheep. But I think that his claim as Lord invalidated the miracles for his opponents. They couldn't get over it. They couldn't get over the idea that Jesus was claiming to be God, that he had a rightful place in their life where he wasn't going to fit in their system. He was going to take over the system. See, what Jesus did was evidence of what he claimed to be. And I think that still today, Jesus is active in the lives of people, and he also still has a claim as Lord over our lives. And still today... I think some people see evidence of what he's doing and they yield to this claim that Jesus is my Lord. And I think there's also people who can't give up the fact that I'm in control. And so they start to have a problem with Jesus. And look, we, may, uh, we could talk about miracles and maybe one day like, that'll be the topic of conversation, right? But even beyond the miraculous today, I think we still see Jesus doing things like redeeming relationships that I've broken, right? That I couldn't possibly fix or restoring things that I've broken or, or maybe it's his sovereign appointments in my life and I can, I, there's no way around it. God must have brought us together, right? Or it's his direction or his conviction, He's always working in our lives. See, people want God's help. You guys pray, right? Everybody prays, right? God, help me. Would you please solve this problem? You know what I would love? I would love a new Land Rover, Jesus. Can you make that? I like green, right? Like we, we pray all kinds of things, but then we don't yield to Jesus' control in our life. And so when he answers our prayers the way that we don't want him to, we act like he never answered it. Isn't it weird that around church, when we say God answers prayers, we mean he said yes. God forbid the Lord said no. You ask a question and he has the right to say no, and yet it seems like we just think, oh, he must not have answered me. You must not have heard me. I said green. <laughs> Let's keep going. They, remember, right at the end there, we're going we're gonna to stone you because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Have you guys ever had one of those moments whenever, maybe you were a kid um, and you get home and, and you've done something wrong and you can hear your mom in the other room and she's like, you would not believe what your son did today. Right? It's interesting how when I don't want to be associated with it, when it's, when it's your problem, it's interesting how that comes up. He doesn't say the law. He says, you guys have a problem here. I'm going to show you. It's not, is it not written in your law? I've said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. We're going to get to the question in your mind in just a minute, I promise. But the point here is that he's saying, you have a problem with something that you don't have a problem with. Do you see the logical argument he's making here? Like, you're going to stone me for something that you don't actually have a problem with. It's a good thing people now don't ever struggle with that, right? It's a good thing there are no hypocrites around us now right? 
It's a good thing there aren't people who hate fossil fuels but then fly around in private jets to talk about it. Right? Like you hate this thing, but you don't hate this thing, right? Or, or parents that tell their kids no sugar before bedtime and then they eat an entire tub of ice cream while watching true crime at 11 o'clock. Right? Like oh, you hate this thing, but you don't hate this thing, do you? Or Christians who say culturally that we have to live our sex lives according to biblical principles and then they withhold sex from their spouse or they're watching porn or they're having an affair. It's a good thing there's no hypocrites in this world, right? Jesus is saying, you guys have a problem with something you don't actually have a problem with. So is it okay if we get kind of nerdy for a minute? Right? Like, is it okay if we, we dig in a little bit? Because I watched three different sermons this week just to kind of see what other people say about this stuff and kind of get a feel for what's out there. And in each of them, they all just went, that was weird, and kept going. <laughs> like, they just kept on, to, and that's not us, right? This, we're going to dig in a little bit. We're going to get nerdy for a few minutes here. And so here's the problem that I'm sure all of you guys are wrestling with, and if you didn't, you're about to. Jesus just said, God, in your guys' law, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, God calls someone or something else God's. And I'm the son of God. So what's your problem? That's his argument. What he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 82. So let's go look at Psalm 82 for a minute. Psalm 82 goes like this. Verse 1. God... Elohim in the Hebrew presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Elohim in the Hebrew. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so what we see here is God is organized this like boardroom meeting. He's got this great assembly of somebody and he's saying to them, you guys aren't doing a very good job with what the, the task I gave you. You're supposed to defend the weak and the fatherless, but you're not. But the problem is Elohim says to a group of Elohim, God says to a group of, wait a minute, Jason, um, I came in here a Christian, <laughs> right? I'm a, I'm a monotheist. Um, I'm really uncomfortable, right? Have you ever gotten to this sort of stuff in scripture and you're like, how fast can I turn the page, right? Have you ever gotten to something and you're like, I just don't want to think about that. It doesn't make sense. You just keep going. What if we slow down for a minute? Let's finish this psalm or let's go a little further in it. Verse five. This is still God talking. The gods, Elohim again, know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. This is what Jesus quotes. You're all sons of the Most High, similar to what Jesus is saying. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Now, we have some options in interpreting this, okay? 
And here's the problem. The, the, the people who translate our Bibles aren't necessarily the authority on the issue, right? And so they've made little g gods and they've put uh, a pot or, uh, you know, hash marks around it. And so you're supposed to read it according to the translators and go, gods, right? And when you hear gods with the little quote marks around it, you think idols or you think it must mean something else, right? As I was studying this, I came across an author. His name is Michael Heiser. He wrote a book called Unseen Realm, and some of you guys have read it. I've I've actually had some conversations with some of you guys about it. Um, First thing I want to say is this guy's not a quack. He's not like some kooky weirdo off off in left field. Like he, He wants to discover what the Bible actually says, and he's doing some scholarly work. You may not agree with him, but he's, he's not crazy. He comes to the conclusion here after some study that started with Psalm 82. It started with him wrestling with this as a scholar of the original language that he believes there's no way around the fact that Elohim, God, was speaking to gods in this passage. And what he, his conclusion that he comes to after studying this for, for years all throughout the Bible is that Elohim in the, in the Hebrew doesn't actually mean God in the sense of his attributes. When we think of God, we think of somebody who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, creative, right, with all of the authority. And what Heiser thinks that he has discovered here is this worldview that has kind of been lost lately, lost in the modern church age, that Elohim actually is more about a place of inhabitance, that it's a spiritual realm. Elohim belong in the spiritual world. And so, according to Michael Heiser, his take on this then is that this couldn't possibly be talking about men because of verse 7. It says, but you will die like mere mortals. Well, why would you tell mortals that they're going to die like mortals? That's his argument, right? And then he goes on, It couldn't possibly be idols in heaven, right? It's not like God set up a boardroom of statues and trophies and then started yelling at them like, you guys suck, right? Like like God doesn't, God's not that ridiculous, right? God is more serious about his creation than that. It's not some puppet show, some theater. So it's not that. What Heiser suggests is that it's an actual, what he calls a divine council, that there's actual beings that God has given some spiritual responsibility over this earth. And his argument actually makes some sense. See, God chooses to share his dominion and rule on earth with humans. Wouldn't it make sense that he would choose and share his dominion and rule in the spiritual realm as well? Doesn't that seem on brand for God since he did it with us in the garden in Genesis? Okay? Now, Stick with me. I see some furrowed brows. Like, I get it, right? I, ha- I feel, I have felt what you feel. I get it. Verse 8, the end of the psalm ends like this. This is the psalmist now speaking to God. He says, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Why would he say that? I'm going to take you back even further. We're going to get even nerdier. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is speaking. And in verse 7, it says, Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you when the Most High, God, 
gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided up all mankind, he set up boundaries for peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, Israel, is his allotted inheritance. So what does that sound like to you when it says that he divided up the nations and he set boundaries for his people? Sounds like to me the story of Babel, right? Whenever he actually physically was like, okay, this rebellious people can't be all in one place. I'm gonna, I'm gonna divide them up here. Babel is where God judges the nations. And it's as if here he is saying, fine, I, if you don't want me, I will disinherit you and I will put over you another spiritual authority that's responsible to me, like a governor. Elohim. It's like God disinherits these rebellious nations at the Tower of Babel. And then interestingly, that's in Genesis 11. In Genesis 12, the very next chapter, he calls Abraham. It's the very next, after the moment that he disinherits the nations, he begins with his inheritance. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. As if this group won't need one of those governors. And see, the problem is that we see, at least from Heiser's point of view, Michael Heiser's point of view, is that this council that was responsible for people on earth also rebelled. So you've got rebellious people associated with rebellious spiritual beings, and we have in the New Testament, Satan, the God of this world, and Ephesians chapter 6, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and authorities in this present darkness, structured and organized, right? And the problem with this is it sounds an awful lot like polytheism, right? And one of the things that I love about this scholar is he makes sure to demonstrate that God is species unique. Yahweh, God, is Elohim, but not all Elohim are Yahweh. Do you guys know that scene? Have you guys seen Independence Day? Old movie, but like really worth watching every 4th of July because we kick alien butt. Okay. <laughs> There's this scene in Independence Day where the president used to be a fighter pilot, and he ends up in a room or in a group of other fighter pilots, a group of pilots, but we all know he's still the president. The president is a pilot, but not all the pilots are the president. Yahweh is Elohim, but not all Elohim or Yahweh. That is Michael Heiser's argument, and he says that we've lost this lens through which Ancient readers would have understood the worldview. Their, their whole world would have been built on this concept, and we are missing it. That's his argument. Now, you also have to understand, we're going we're to come back to John 10 now, okay? You also have to understand that in Jesus' day, they were walking around with the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So obviously, they were studying Hebrew as well, but they had and quoted the Septuagint. And in Greek... This passage in John, they say, How dare you, a mere man, claim to be Theos, God? And the Septuagint version of Psalm 82 says that Theos said to an assembly of Theos. And so that language here, there's the possibility that Jesus is using that to make an argument. And so here are, here are your options. 
Jesus is using their worldview to poke holes in their reasoning. And he's either saying, you guys believe in an unseen world where multiple beings are called Theos, Elohim. So why is it impossible that Theos is in your midst? Now, I and Yahweh, I and the Father are one. So in a worldview where you recognize that there are other Elohim and they have authority on this earth, I'm still unique. But why are you bothered? Why are you tripped up on the words? That's one argument. The other one is that he's saying, you guys have an example of God calling men gods because they represented and channeled God's authority on earth. And so based on your own law, you shouldn't be upset about it now because Yahweh sent me, God sent me, and I have his authority on earth. Those are your options, okay? Either he's saying there's this realm of unseen spiritual beings and you should be used to this phrase, theos, or he's saying, look, in, the, in your Bible, they already call men gods every once in a while when they have God's authority. Those are your options. So which is it? Right? You're sitting there and you're like, yeah, I didn't come here to get questions. Right? I came here to get answers. We have a, a, a thing here that we are proud of. We are lifelong learners here. Right? If you ever think that you have your head wrapped around everything in the Bible, you probably stopped reading it. Right? Like we're always learning. And the other thing that we have going for us here is that there are some hills that we're going to die on and there are some hills that we're not going to die on. Right? Jesus, the, the, the Trinitarian view of Jesus, that he is part of God, that he is God. We're going to die on that hill. That's a non-negotiable. The fact that Jesus died a substitutionary death for our sins, that we couldn't do anything about it, but he did everything. I'm going to die on that hill. That it's by grace and not by works. I'm going to die on that hill. And then there's some that I'm not going to die on. This is one of those where you want to argue about whether or not there's some spiritual uh, being council thing out there. It's okay for us all to disagree and still go to church together, okay, about some of these sort of things. But I have an opinion. <laughs> there is this term called exegesis. It means that the text only means what it meant when it was written, and so if you exegete properly, you are discovering what it means. You are not adding to it what you think it means, okay? So our job as students of God's Word is to discover what the Bible meant when it was written. And I think that Michael Heiser is trying to understand the ancient worldview of the Israelites. He's trying to get context. I think he's doing diligent work. And I think it's even possible that he's right. I, I would not be surprised to find out whenever I get to heaven that that book was all correct. But if it's our job to uncover what the text means when it was written, then I think Jesus has a right to tell us what it meant when it was written. I think if anybody has a right to interpret the Old Testament, it's Jesus in the New Testament. And I think it's interesting that the claim that he is arguing against says you, a mere man, claim to be God. And that's what sparks this conversation. And so to me, that context, you, a mere man, claim to be God, makes it sound like his argument is, you guys have been okay with other guys being called God before. So I think Jesus is interpreting Psalm 82 as men, not as a divine counsel. 
Doesn't mean I think Michael Heiser's off base in general, and I just don't think that's what Psalm 82 means. That's me. Let's get back into the text. Okay, nerd time over. Sorry. Okay. Verse 37. Either we're happy about how nerd time went, or we're happy that it's over. I'm not sure what that was for. Okay. Verse 37, John 10. Jesus says, Don't believe me. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him, and he escaped their grasp. See, he says in this moment, after all of this, um, this tension, right, this, this moment when people are fighting with him and arguing with him, and he's trying to like, give them answers, but at the same time, they're just never going to hear it. He says, you're missing the whole point. What I do is evidence of who I am. Would you look at what I've done? Would you look at the evidence You need to focus on what I'm doing, and then you'll understand that I'm from God. Every person that he did something for, every miracle, every time he fed somebody, they needed it. Jesus is in the business of doing incredible things for people who need it. And once again, we're confronted with this idea that they're missing it because they don't need him. They don't need him to be the Messiah. They don't need him to be Lord, and so they can't see it. And so often I think that we focus on knowing more. We focus on getting our questions answered, right? So they're in the colonnade, Solomon's colonnade, and they're like, Jesus, I have another question. And I think sometimes we come to church or we ask our friends, I have another question. I have another thing I need to know. And while I think studying and learning is good, I think we get to the point where our questions actually get in the way of us moving forward in our faith. We start to use it as a crutch. Like we act like we need more information in order for us to have more obedience. And my guess is that you know plenty of things that you have a hard time obeying now. I do. Right? It's not that I'm lacking understanding about what God wants in my life. It's that I don't do it very well. I think we play this game with God. If only I understood. God, I just need some more clarity. I know it sounds, I think you called me to move to Africa, but if only you would just, I don't know, send me a ticket in the mail, right? We need clarity, right? Or, you say, God, I'm not ready yet. I know that this, I think this is what you want me to do. I'm not ready yet. Like, I need to develop a little bit. I need some more answers in my life. I need to grow. And then pretty soon it's been 10 years, and you never grew. Right? What worries me is how often am I more like the Jewish leaders in this story than I like to admit How often am I looking for excuses not to obey because I don't have all the answers? How often am I getting hung up on what I don't understand and I miss what he's doing in my life or in my friends' lives or in my church's life? And so he finishes, or or John finishes the chapter like this. Remember, Jesus just escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. 
And there he stayed. And many people came to him and they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed. See, I think this is that moment when you're so fed up with people that when you finally get that phone call from your best friend, it's like the stress just melts away. My people, how refreshing. And I think Jesus has had one of those days, one of those years, where there's just this constant fighting and antagonism. And so he goes back across the river to where it all started. Remember back at the beginning when it was easy? Do you remember where that was in the, the Jordan where John had been baptizing? And he gets over there and it's like it's so easy. Look at how that read. It's like he got over there and they didn't even really need a sign. They just, it's all true and they believed. wonder why that was. I think it's because of the work that John the Baptist had been doing in that area. If you remember what John did, his entire ministry was to prepare hearts for Jesus. His ministry was a ministry of repentance. His ministry was all about the fact that you are not okay. You need help. You need the coming Savior. You need God's help. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, they're like, we need somebody. And he goes, I'm the somebody. I'm the one who's here to help you. I'm your Messiah, but I also want to be your Lord. And they say, please, would you take over? I need you. And maybe these people were um, prepared because they were poor country people and there were rich city people who were fighting with them all the time. Maybe they were prepared because they're not religious, and then the religious people can't get over their religious hang-ups. I don't, I'm not sure, but I am sure that this environment around John knew that they needed help. They recognized their need for a Savior, and so they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also let Jesus be Lord. Lord. We've talked about this before. Jesus isn't content with you only making him your savior. Him and the Father are one. He is God and he has a right to be God in your life. And so the idea that he's gonna come and be a savior but he's not gonna be a Lord in my life doesn't fit with who Jesus is and that's part of the problem with how they would have seen him back in Jerusalem. But he gets out here at the Jordan and they're like, please, be the Lord. People recognize that they're not good at sitting on the throne of their own life and so then Jesus gets to take his rightful place. And people who get that are the sheep that he's talking about. And so I want to leave this on the screen. I think Jesus inhabits the places where he is Lord. Now I know theologically, like, Jesus is everywhere. I get it, right? But like, in this story, I think we see that he would rather be with and stay with the people who need him. The Jewish leaders might accept a Messiah, but not a Lord. They could, you could do stuff for us. You could save us. You could help us with Rome, but you can't be in charge. You're a threat. But the repentant Jews were ready for Jesus, and they were a sheep. They were ready for him, so they became part of his fold. And it makes me wonder where we're at. How often do we want to pick the pasture and then say that Jesus is the shepherd? 
How often are we still sitting on the throne of our life and we're trying to drag Jesus along with us? And he doesn't give us that option, right? Like we like to think that we're over here on John's side of this story, right? We're over there by the Jordan and I think often I'm actually the one over here fighting with Jesus about my life. I don't like what you would do. I don't want to give you control of that area of my life. So what does your heart do when God is calling you to uncomfortable obedience? What happens in you whenever God says, I want you to do something, and you say, ooh, I don't want to do that? What happens in those moments? Do you even ask those kind of questions? Right? Like, um, what if God led you to this amazing house, and you bought it for such a deal, and now you have all this equity, and then God is calling you to sell it to somebody at a discount because you know them and it's a blessing. Oh, that's scary right now. I don't, know if I, could, I don't know if I could do that. Could I lose that much money? Right? What about leaving a good job because God is calling you to do something different with your life? What about turning the other cheek to somebody in your life that shouldn't have hurt you that did? See, sometimes God calls us to uncomfortable obedience, and those are the moments that we find out if he's Lord or not. And Jesus inhabits the places where he's Lord. Is Jesus a threat in your life? Because the answer for most people is yes. Of course Jesus is a threat to my finances. Did you see what he wants me to do with that tithing stuff, right? Um, yes, he's a threat to my sex life. How boring to do it that way, right? Um, of course he's a threat to my career path. I'm supposed to take days off and care about other people along the way. Of course he's a threat to my bitterness and anger. I have a right to be mad. Of course he's a threat to my family relationships. You mean I'm not in charge of my kids? All the, Like I have to actually care about them too and their feelings and... Of course he's a threat. Do you feel like he's a threat or is he Lord? My prayer is that we would be the people that he loves to be with. That we're not always arguing with him and fighting with him about everything. That he gets around us and he goes, I'm so glad to be with you. People that follow the shepherd, people that know that they need him. Let me pray over you real quick. Jesus, thank you for your life and your example to us. I love that you lived a life like we have to live and that you were around people that were hard. We know what that's like. And I also think it's cool that, that you liked being around other people, that you were happy to stay somewhere with people who needed you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to stir in us our affections for Jesus, that we would want his control, and his lordship in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Um, right before you go, if you're interested in, in reading or wrestling with that book, I'm going to put a slide up on the screen from that Michael Heiser book and a QR code to his website. You're welcome to check it out. And uh, be a student yourself. The church may leave the building.